Revelation chapter 5, if you want to grab your copy of God's Word this morning and turn there, that's where we'll be today. I've entitled this message today, All Eyes on the Lamb. If you were here with us last week, you'll remember last week's message was entitled, All Eyes on the Throne. And, and Revelation chapter 4 and 5 is just this amazing picture of what worship is like in heaven. What John was seeing was not just some future reality, but he was seeing a glimpse, an unveiling, a pulling back of the veil of heaven so that he might experience for a moment the glory of what's taking place even as we've gathered for worship here this morning. Now I can guarantee you as we come in together this morning for worship, we come in a variety of ways. Some of us are, are overly distracted. Uh, even, even some of our, our worship team were distracted this morning by things that didn't quite work as we had expected them to work. Guitars that don't want to play the way they're supposed to and all that kind of stuff. And we, we easily get distracted by things that have happened before, or we're thinking about things that are come later, what, what's cooking in the crock pot at home for lunch, not to remind you of that in this moment, but we get distracted by the things that have happened in the past, things that are yet to come, and, and our minds wander, and, we, and you wonder sometimes as a pastor, are they really listening to me? And sometimes you are, and sometimes you're not. I've been where you're sitting. It, it's, it happens, doesn't it? But what we see in Revelation 4 and 5 is a picture of the kind of worship that will be taking place for all of eternity around the throne of God. And all eyes will be fixed on this one who is referred to as the Lamb. Let's look at him this morning. First thing we see there in verse 1 is we see that there is a scroll for the Lamb. Revelation 5, verse 1, he says, Then I saw, John says, I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now we know from Revelation chapter 4 that the one seated on the throne is the Lord God Almighty. He is the one true and living God. There is none like him. And as we looked at Revelation chapter 4, we saw him as our creator. And now this week we're going to see him as our redeemer through this one called the Lamb. But here, the one seated on the throne has in his hand a scroll, and this scroll is rolled up, and it's, he can see that there's writing both on the front and the back, on the inside and on the outside of this scroll, and also that it's sealed with seven seals. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us today, because we don't really use scrolls anymore. We now use books, and, and we don't really think much of, well, what in the world is this all about? But if you put on your first century glasses for a moment and you think about the readers that John was writing to in these early churches, this would have been a very particular type of scroll from their perspective. You see, in John's day it was not uncommon that if, if you owned a piece of property and you wanted to sell that piece of land that you would go to the city gate in order to sell that land. And you would take with you the deed for that piece of land. But it wasn't enough for you to have the desire to sell and for you to have the deed to sell that land. You also had to have a number of witnesses. And what the witnesses would do is they would put their seals upon your deed. You would take the deed for that land and you would roll it up like a scroll. 
and they would write, they would put their seals upon that deed, saying, the, "We are witnesses to the fact that that Kevin Jolly owns this land, and that he has the right because he's the owner of the land and bears the deed. We are witnesses to the fact that he has the right to give or sell this land to whoever he chooses, and that's exactly what would take place." on a daily basis at the, at the city gates, the place where they would interact with their business every, on every given day. And so when John says, the one seated on the throne is holding in his hand a scroll, and it's written on the front and the back as these title deeds would have been, and it's sealed with seven seals, this meant something to them. They thought of what took place at their city gates and the sale of property on every given day. And it's a picture here of the fact that this scroll is the title deed for all creation. Everything that has been created, everything that exists in creation, everything we see, taste, touch, feel, and smell, everything that we know as created creatures of God was created by God himself. And so he holds the title deed. He holds the right to ownership of all these things. Like we talked about last week, the very chair that you're sitting in this morning is composed of atoms that are being held together by the power of God in this very moment. Not only were they created by God, but they are held together by the power of God. The cells in your body that are causing blood to move through your veins and your lungs to continue to inflate and deflate, those are held together by the power of God who holds in his hand the title deed of all creation. And this deed is sealed up perfectly. That's why it's sealed with seven seals. And we'll see these seven seals in coming weeks as they, they are opened one by one. You'll see what happens as these seals are opened but we understand that this seal, this scroll is rolled up and sealed perfectly and it's in the hand of God with these seven seals. And a similar thing happens in the book of Ezekiel. I want you to see this, Ezekiel chapter 2. We talked about last week how Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah, these Old Testament prophets, had similar visions to what John had and they helped to inform John and to help him to describe what he saw. Ezekiel chapter 2, Ezekiel says, And when I looked, behold, a hand was outstretched to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he opened it, he spread it out before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, similar to what John saw. And there was written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Now you're going to see that's going to be the outcome of the scroll that John sees as the scroll is opened seal by seal and eventually will be opened for all to see. You're going to see that coming with this scroll comes lamentation and mourning and woe. From chapter 6 to chapter 19 in the book of Revelation, that's pretty much the way you could describe those chapters. It's lamentation and mourning. It's not a good day. But let us not forget, church, these things are meant to bring us hope. This was written to a people who were seeking to honor Christ with their lives, and in return they were face, facing persecution from every side. They were facing persecution from the Jews, persecution from the Romans. Everybody was against the followers of Jesus Christ in this day, and it was a good thing for them to be reminded that there was coming a day when they would dwell not in a place of persecution and defeat, but in a place of victory when they would no longer find disdain for bearing the name of Christ, but they would find glory. 
And so we find them here. And in Ezekiel's day, he was seeing a similar thing that was helping John to explain what he saw when the veil of heaven was pulled back. It goes on from there in verses 2 through 5. We see the search for the Lamb. And this is the key question of Revelation 4 and 5. It occurs here in these verses. The key question of these two chapters that are picturing the worship that's taking place in heaven, even now as we are gathered, wherever your minds might be, whether you're totally focused in or whether you're completely distracted, whatever's taking place here right now, we know this, in heaven, all focus is upon the throne of God and the Lamb who is there as we see Him unveiled here in chapter 5. And so here comes the question. John says in verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, and here's the key question, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And so here comes the key question For the day, if you take nothing else away from this message today, I hope that you'll be able to take this home and dwell upon this question because it's the key question not just of these chapters. I believe this is the key question for the life of every man, woman, boy, and girl that ever has roamed the face of this planet. The question is this, who's worthy? Who is worthy of your utmost devotion? Who's worthy of your time? Who is worthy of the treasure that God has entrusted to you? Who is worthy of the devotion of your heart? Who is worthy of the praise of your mouth? Who is worthy? And of course we find only one answer here. But I can't help but think that around this room, we are all answering that question in a variety of different ways. You don't get to opt out on this one. That's the hard part about this quiz. You don't just get to take a pass and say, well, I don't really feel like answering that right now. You are answering that in your life right now. You are demonstrating by your life who is worthy or what is worthy of your devotion, of your praise, of your life. You are demonstrating that. We were creatures that were created for the holy purpose of worship. And you will. You don't get to opt out of worship. No matter whether you find yourself a professed atheist this morning, you don't get to opt out of worship because you were created for that purpose. The one question that remains is, who will your worship go to? Who will you find worthy? That's the question of worship. Who is worthy? And so that's the key question. As they search for one worthy to open the scroll, who is worthy? And then John, is, as he's wailing over the fact that no one is found worthy to open the scroll. It seems as if they've, they've done this search. They've searched all of heaven, and none have been found. They've searched all through the earth, and none have been found. They've searched under the earth. They've gone even so far as to go to the pits of hell to look and see. Perhaps there we might find one worthy to open this scroll, to take from the hand of the Lord God Almighty the title deed of all creation, to take that upon themselves and to begin to open the scroll so that the plan of God might be fulfilled, the promises of God might be seen unveiled, and they might see the fulfillment of God's plan in the world 
And John begins to wail. That's the word, the Greek word here. It doesn't refer to just a weep quietly. It's this outward, loud, wailing, wailing openly because no one is found. And for a moment, for a moment, it's as if John loses a little bit of hope. Perhaps God's promises will go unfulfilled. Have you ever thought this way? In the darkest of our days, when the world seems to just be getting worse and worse, when the news stories go from bad to worse, night to night, when your family seems to be falling apart, when everything seems to be going downhill, it's easy for us to get in that place where our life becomes like John's wailing. Nothing seems to be going in the right direction and we start to lose hope. But this book was meant to give us hope. And as they search for the Lamb, there is one who says to John, one of the elders standing nearby to him says, Stop your crying. Weep no more. We found the one who's worthy. Behold, the lion, this is verse 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And there's this great moment of rejoicing that comes because they found the one who can open this scroll and can complete the plan of God. All the promises of God are amen and yes in him. And he refers to him here as the lion of the tribe of Judah. That comes from the book of Genesis. The promises that were made to the tribe of Judah that they would be like a lion and one would come from them who would rule over the kingdom of God forever and ever. And then he refers to him as the root of David. This comes from the book of Isaiah where it refers to one who would be the root of David who would come not just as a descendant of David, but would also be the source of David's kingship that would rule upon the throne of David forever and ever. And it was a reminder to John, these promises will not go unfulfilled. All the Old Testament prophets point to him. All the promises of God point to him. And God will be faithful to his word. And we don't have to lose heart and spend our lives wailing as if God's not going to come through. The book of Revelation is a book of victory for the people of God. And far too often we live as if we're a people defeated. Rather than a people who've already overcome by the blood of this lamb who was slain. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah had a similar experience in the throne room of God. He says, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So just as John had this moment of weeping and wailing before the throne of God, Isaiah 2 said, Woe is me, perhaps I'm a man undone at this moment, perhaps there's no more hope left. And it's so easy for us, as the people of God, to lose hope, to lose sight of the fact that God has already won. We're just waiting for the victory celebration. I see some response to that this morning, but I I think it's one of the greatest truths that's being overlooked and not embraced among us. That we live already in the victory that's been promised. We're just waiting for the victory celebration. 
That doesn't mean there's not work left to do, that there aren't people left to be reached. We should be inviting them to join with us in the victory celebration every day of our lives until that day comes. But we need to stop living like we're whooped pups. That's the way we live a lot of times. Tail tucked between our legs and we're bashful and shy and and backward and we, we don't want to speak about Jesus because nobody really wants to hear about Jesus. But one day they will. And one day there will be folks that will be asking us, children of God, why didn't you tell me? Why did I see you live in your life like you were in a state of wailing when you should have been living in a state of rejoicing? Why did I see you so burdened down that there was no victory in your life and I didn't really want what you had? when I should have seen you had the greatest victory and you never dared to share it with me. Next thing we see in verses 6 through 10 is we see the song for the Lamb. As the Lamb comes forward and He takes the scroll, the hand, from the, uh, the hand of the Lord God Almighty, the immediate response of heaven is worship. And they burst forth into three more songs. There were two songs in chapter 4 for the one on the throne. And they burst forth here into three more songs for the Lamb. And it says the first of these was a new song. The longest of the songs is focused on the Lamb and what He has done. And then the second song comes and it's focused on the Lamb and what He is worthy of. And when you say He's worthy, what is He worthy of? And then the third song comes and the Lamb and the one on the throne are put together and they are both ascribed glory and honor and power and blessing by all of creation. Let's walk through some of these things together. But first, let's see this lamb. Describes him, and the idea here is not to give us some weird, grotesque picture of this strange little lamb in heaven. Remember, John is using symbolic language here to powerfully declare what he saw. He's not saying literally there's a little lamb in heaven that has seven horns and seven eyes and it's a freakish little thing. That's not the idea here. But the symbolic language was used by John to try to help us just for a moment to grasp the magnitude of what he saw. And so he says this lamb has seven horns. It's a picture of perfect power. Whenever you see horns in the scripture, they are a symbol of power. And so this lamb having seven horns is meant to say to us, this lamb has all the power necessary to do what needs to be done. And it's this amazing paradox because the word lamb here stands for what they would have referred to as a household pet. Before the Passover, every year, the Jewish folks would take into their homes a little lamb and they would have it as their household pet for a time prior to the Passover when you kind of get the idea of what they would do with it. But they... They would have this lamb in their home, and that's the word that's used here, this little lamb. And yet this little lamb has all the power in the universe. He is described here with perfect power to do everything that needs to be done. Is that your Savior this morning? I'm afraid sometimes our God is far too weak. Our vision of God is far too weak. And here we see a lamb who has all the power in the universe to do everything that needs to be done for the children of God. 
Secondly, he only has seven horns, but he has seven eyes. Again, not to meant to give us some weird, freaky picture of a seven-eyed lamb, but meant to show us that this lamb has perfect perception, that he sees all things. Nothing has escaped his notice. He is perfect in knowledge and wisdom. He knows all things. He has perfect perception. And then he also refers to the fact that with him are seven spirits. We've seen the seven spirits of God all through the book of Revelation. You're going to continue to see them time and time again in this book. The Holy Spirit is all over this book. And we need to see him. This is a representation of his perfect presence. Theologians will say these three things refer to his omnipotence, his omniscience, and his omnipresence, that he has perfect power, perfect perception, and perfect presence, that he is in all places at all times, he knows all things, and there is nothing that he is unable to do. He can do anything he desires to do. That is your God. In the form of this little lamb that to the world looks like nothing. But he is everything that we need. the book of Daniel chapter 7 Daniel says and I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed I believe that what Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7 is the exact same thing that John saw here in Revelation chapter 5. That that scroll that was extended to the Lamb, that the Lamb took from the hand of the Lord God Almighty, was all of these things, was the kingdom of God, was all the glory, all the dominion, all the power for every tribe, tongue, and nation to come before His throne. This was given to the Lamb because He alone was worthy to open the scroll. And why was He worthy? Why is Jesus Christ worthy of your worship this morning? It's a question you need to ask. Because I urge you, don't come into a place like this, what we call a worship service, and not be able to answer that question. Because as long as we just go through the motions of doing church, we often miss the fact that we're meant to be the church and as long as we stop asking those questions of why is he worthy of worship we'll start to get into that mode where well we just come in and we sing these songs and we don't really know why we do this everybody else that we know sleeps in on sunday mornings but we haven't go to church why I, I don't really know you need to be able to answer the why question because revelation chapter 5 answers the question of why he is worthy of worship He is worthy of worship because He has ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And how did He do that? By pouring out His blood on the cross. He was the Lamb who was slain. And He poured out His blood on the cross in order to purchase for God. That word ransom there in your Bibles is a particular word that was used in the marketplaces in the first century. And it would be the word that you would use if you were to go to the marketplace and you were to go to the slave auction. And you were to go there and purchase a slave only to set him free. That's the word that would be used. 
that word ransom, that you would go to purchase a slave in order that you might set him free. Children of God, that's what your Savior did for you. What was he doing at the cross that day? Did he have nothing better to do one Friday than to go to an old rugged cross? No, he was there to purchase for God a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Every man, woman, boy, and girl that would trust him by faith was on his heart and mind, and every drop of his blood was poured out so that they might know the one true and living God. So he bought your freedom. Not that so you could expend it on your own pleasures and your own desires so that you could expend your freedom for His glory. He ransomed you. And so He is worthy of your praise because He paid the price for your redemption. And when the Bible says that you are nothing apart from Christ, it means it. When the Bible says that you can do everything through Him who strengthens you, that being the Lord Jesus Christ, it means it. Everything that you are, child of God, is because of Him. And you are nothing apart from Him. But you have all that you need in Christ. So worship Him. Expend your life for Him. Give all the glory and power and breath in your lungs to Him because He is worthy of all that and more than you could ever give. And so how do they do that? Verses 11 through 14. This is the worship service for the Lamb. They can't help it. They look at what He has done in giving His holy, pure, and perfect life for the redemption of a people that didn't even deserve one drop of His blood. And He poured it all out. They look at what he has done, and they cannot help but burst forth in praise. And we hold back because we don't feel like it. We hold back because what will somebody else think if I really get caught up in worshiping my Lord? We hold back because just whatever reason you want to fill in the blank with. But there's no holding back around the throne. There's no holding back. Because they look at Him, they see what He has done, they recognize that He alone is worthy, and so they burst forth in these songs of praise to Him. Who bursts forth? First of all, the angelic assembly, the myriads of myriads, the thousands upon thousands of angels encircling the throne of God, they burst forth in praise. There is no holding back. We can't even imagine the sound. It's taking place even now. We can't even imagine the sound of thousands upon thousands of powerful angel voices crying out in this perfect song of praise. What is He worthy of? Look with me. And they were saying a new song. And then there in verse 12, they said with a loud voice, thousands upon thousands singing, Worthy is the Lamb. In what way? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Perfect praise. Seven words. 
that they speak. Worthy are you to receive all the power and the wealth and the wisdom and the glory and the honor and the blessing. Every bit of it is ascribed to you. You're the only one that's worthy and we give it all to you. The very things that he was denied at his cross are attributed to him at his throne in all of their fullness. Look at those words with me. Don't just read over those words as if they're just words on a page. Each word is particularly picked out to describe his worthiness for our worship. When he was on the throne, no one thought he was powerful. In fact, they mocked him and said, if you're so powerful, come down off the throne and save yourself. And they ascribed to him all power. Nobody would have attributed to him at that cross wisdom. In fact, they would have looked at him and said, how foolish. They mocked him as a fool. But he was worthy. All wisdom was displayed in him. No one would have looked at him and thought he was mighty. What could be weaker than a naked man hanging on a cross? The last drops of his blood even couldn't even last long enough, they would have thought, to the point where they would come along and break his legs. Of course, that was according to prophecy. We don't have time to get into that this morning, but they saw him as weak. There was no might there from their estimation. They didn't honor him. From their perspective, he was due no honor. He was only worthy of mockery as they plucked out his beard and as they beat him and they said, who is it that beat you? If you're really the son of God, tell us. And they mocked him. They did not honor him. They did not see him worthy of glory. They only saw him as some insignificant wacko who thought that he was a king. There was no glory given to him. He was only seen in insignificance. And they certainly didn't bless him. They hurled their insults at him. They cursed him. Surely in their minds was that Old Testament scripture which says, Cursed is everyone who is hung upon a tree. And they considered him cursed by God. But children of God, he became a curse for you. So that you might experience the blessing of God. He became weak in your place so that you might know the power of God. He was willing to be called a fool so that you might taste of the wisdom of God. And all of these things were due Him. Every one of these attributes and all the attributes that we could possibly ascribe to Him, He's worthy of that and more. But He became nothing so that you might be able to draw one day before this throne of grace with confidence, knowing that your Savior lives and that He paid the price for your redemption and that everything that you need to come and lay before His throne you find in Him. And so the angels worship God, and not only the angels, I want you to see this. It's not just the angels, it's the complete creation. Read on with me, I want you to see it. In verse 13, he says, I heard every creature. Remember where they had looked, they had searched in all of creation. They had searched in heaven and on earth and under the earth to find the one who was worthy. And now, every creature that had been searched... 
every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, they were saying what? To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the, and the elders fell down and worshipped. All creation doing what it was intended to do from the very beginning. Romans chapter 8 tells us that at this point in history, creation has been subjected to frustration, to groaning, as if in the pains of childbirth, because of the effects of sin and death in our world, creation is groaning. But there is coming a day when creation will be renewed and they won't gro- creation will not groan. Any- there will be no more groaning. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more weeping. There will be only praise. All that is due Him, there will only be praise for Him. So as we come to the end of our message today, I have to ask you this. Will you be one to join in the song? And I am not just talking about the words of your lips this morning. Will you be one to ascribe to Jesus Christ, you're worthy of all that I am. You're worthy of more than just my Sunday mornings, or my Wednesday nights, or those few moments that I attempt to pray before I drift off to sleep. You're worthy of every moment. And every moment that I could give you still pales in comparison with your worthiness. If I could devote every moment of my life to singing and proclaiming your praises, it still wouldn't be enough. It still wouldn't measure up to who you are. But so often he's just an afterthought. Even in this moment, he can become an afterthought. And he should be the center. And so they sing this song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and will, wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And they continue on unto him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might, not just now, not just in days to come, but forever and ever and ever and ever. And the song goes on because in every given moment, there's more of His glory to behold. It never gets old. It just continues on because they know He alone is worthy. So the question for you this morning is simply this. Do you find Him worthy? Do you really find him worthy? Of what, you might ask? Of everything. Is he worthy of your time? Is he worthy of your finances? Is he worthy of the lives of your children? Should they choose to expend their lives on a foreign mission field where you might never see them again? at least in this earth? Is he worthy of whatever sacrifice he might ask of you? Or does there come a point 
when you'd have to say, no, that's just asking a little too much. I just want to proclaim to you this morning, He is worthy. But will you recognize His worthiness? Will you live in such a way that you proclaim His worthiness? As we come to the end of our services today, we're going to do what I believe is one of the most powerful gifts of worship that the Lord has given to us. We're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is meant to be a reminder to us. Throughout the passage that describes this that we're about to do, the word is remember. And it's not remember in some nostalgic or ultra-traditional way. It's remember because we often forget just how worthy He is and what He's done for us. And we need to be reminded. And it's a plea. The word remember is a plea before God saying, God, would you remind me? Would you remind me of what you redeemed me from? That the law of sin and death had a chokehold on my life. And you freed me by the blood of your own pure and perfect Son poured out at the cross for me. Remind me, God. And would you remind me of the fact that you redeemed me not just so I could sit and stew in a church somewhere, but so that I could be a world-changing follower of Jesus Christ in the world in which you've put me to proclaim the glories of your majesty in my daily life. Would you remind me, God, As our deacons come, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And as we pray, Grant's going to begin to, to play softly. Perhaps you find yourself at a place this morning where you've just started to forget If there has ever been a time in your life when you were more head over heels in love with Jesus Christ than you are right now, then there is some repentance and turning back to God needed. And the Lord's Supper invites us to remember, but it also invites us to look inwardly, to examine ourselves to see where the reality of our faith is in these days so Lord help us remind us examine us and help us to be real with you we pray this in Jesus name Amen in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 